Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live, the new race for space, success and challenges in the final frontier. We're thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Please submit questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We love to know who's joining us. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience, as many of us are working from home and using home internet. I now invite John Venable, Heritage's Senior Research Fellow for Defense Policy, to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, thank you, Catherine, and good morning and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is John Venable, or simply JV, and it's my pleasure to, to, uh, to welcome you to, to, to this morning's event, the new race for space, success and challenges in the final frontier. We have a great program lined up for you this morning, and I'll do my best to fly a predictable path and minimize the associated switch errors. We'll spend a minute or two with introductions, enjoy some opening remarks from Justin Johnson, and then spend the remainder of our time with three extraordinary panelists. Uh, throughout the morning, please submit your questions in that panel, the very bottom right side of it, uh, at any time during the morning, and we'll uh, do our best to get through them throughout the program. Let me start with a, a few in, uh, lines about our panelists. Uh, on the screen there, uh, you can see the extraordinary lineup of uh, handsome men. Uh, second from the right, um, current titles and, and descriptions aside, uh, Dr. Henry Hertzfeld is an expert in almost every conceivable area of space. And if you know his background, about the only thing he hasn't done is, is travel in the domain itself. Next to him is Mike Gold, and he served as the Vice President of Civil Space at Maxar Technology and on just about every board, committee, and advisory council concerning space that you can name, including the Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee, the FAA's Commercial Space Transportation Federal Advisory Committee, and the NASA Advisory uh, Council. And finally, uh, second from the left is Heritage's own Dean Chang, who knows more about China's military and space capabilities than perhaps any other scholar in the United States. Last fall, I uh, walked uh, through the halls of what is now U.S. Space Command with him, and, and it's an experience I can best describe as stepping back into Vegas with Elvis. We're going to keep those gentlemen on ice for a few minutes, and uh, I'll ask Justin Johnson to unmute and come on screen while I introduce him. Justin is the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. In that role, he establishes policy and guidance to assure the United States and our allies, um, our warfighters have seamless access to our space capabilities, and he helps guide the department's strategy for warfighting in space. Prior to his current position, Justin served as the Deputy Chief of Staff to the Secretary of Defense and as a Special Assistant to Deputy Secretary of Defense as his lead for space issues. There, he oversaw the working group responsible for developing the proposal to establish the United States Space Force. Aside from several other impressive positions, Justin is the Heritage Foundation alumnus. And with that, Justin, it's my honor to welcome you back to the Heritage stage. JV, thanks so much for the kind introduction. It's great to uh, see your smiling face. Uh, I wish this was in person, not virtual, but still it's an honor to be here with you and my other colleagues. Uh, as this audience knows, the United States has decades of leadership in space, 
civil, commercial, military. The capabilities we've developed have had enormous benefit for every American and are vital to our nation's security, prosperity, and scientific achievement. Or put more bluntly, our $20 trillion U.S. economy runs on space. Space has also been fundamental to America's warfighting capability, including things like precision-guided munitions, global secure communications, unmanned aircraft, missile defense, and the list goes on. Our American military advantage depends on space, and our potential adversaries have taken note. Uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen rising threats to our space capabilities from China and Russia in particular. China's 2007 direct ascent ASAT test, anti-satellite missile test, marked a new era in space and irresponsibly created thousands of pieces of space debris, debris that can remain on orbit for decades and threatens everything else in orbit, regardless of country of origin, civil, commercial, and military. Since 2007, China has continued to aggressively weaponize space. The PLA is developing co-orbital co threats, electronal, electronic warfare, and directed energy capabilities to hold our space capabilities at risk. The PLA has fielded an operational ground-based ASAT system intended to target low Earth orbit satellites and probably intends to pursue additional ASAT weapons capable of destroying satellites up to geosynchronous orbit. The PLA is employing more sophisticated satellite operations and is probably testing dual use technologies in space that could be applied to future counter space missions. And while not necessarily a weapon, uh, just last month, the PLA successfully tested its first space plane, accomplished brief LEO operations and landed back on Earth. Meanwhile, Russia is also making aggressive moves to weaponize space. Last fall, Russia launched a satellite which released a second satellite, and those satellites actively maneuvered near a U.S. government asset. Uh, this was similar to Russian maneuvers we observed in 2017, which culminated in the release of a high-speed projectile into space. This spring, Russia conducted a test of a mobile ASAT system capable of destroying satellites, again, in low Earth orbit. And in July of this year, Russia conducted another non-destructive test of a space-based anti-satellite weapon, injecting a new object into orbit in proximity to another Russian satellite. The bottom line, as you can see, is that China and Russia are aggressively developing counter-space capabilities specifically designed to hold U.S. and allied space capabilities at risk. China and Russia have made space a warfighting domain. We are responding quickly to this new strategic environment so that we can protect and defend U.S. interests in space and preserve space as a peaceful domain for all responsible users. The moves by this administration, with the support from Congress, are truly historic. Last year alone, we created the Space Development Agency, we reestablished U.S. Space Command, and in December, Congress passed and the President signed the National Defense Authorization Act, creating the U.S. Space Force. This year, 2020, the Space Force is running fast, standing up, moving people into the Space Force. Uh, lots of excitement there, which we can talk more about if you'd like. Uh, in June of this year, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper signed out the Defense Space Strategy, which will guide the department over the next 10 years in achieving our desired conditions for a space domain that is secure, stable, and accessible. And while all of that is going on in DOD, our interagency colleagues at NASA, FAA, Commerce, and others have been moving at speed as well. Uh, in short, it's been a truly historic period for national security space. But in many ways, we are only just beginning. We've established the organizations we need to compete, deter, and win. Now we need to deliver results. Our competitors are moving fast, and we must stay ahead of them. As I mentioned, our new defense space strategy maps out the work ahead of us. 
as we seek to maintain space superiority, provide space support to national, joint, and combined operations, and ensure space stability. In the strategy, we laid out four lines of effort, LOEs in DOD speak, uh, build, integrate, shape, and cooperate. Let me briefly touch on those four as sort of to describe the work we have ahead of us. The first one, uh, build a comprehensive military advantage in space. This is primarily about the Space Force building out uh, the, a military service to organize, train, and equip, uh, to build a strong and responsive force, uh, to train uh, space warfighters, to develop space power, expertise and doctrine, culture, uh, and to field resilient, assured architectures that are cyber secure and develop capability that, to counter the threats that we see coming. Uh, Second LOE is integrate, integrate space into national, joint, and combined operations. This is primarily about space command, bringing space capabilities to the day-to-day -day military competition and, if necessary, to the fight. This is things like operational integration with allies and partners, uh, doing, developing plans, conducting exercises, executing joint and combined operations today. Uh, you know, and as, as many people know, space today is a huge enabler. We've got the communications, uh, PNT or you know precision navigation timing, GPS, uh, weather, ISR, missile warning, etc. And space has has to continue to provide those capabilities for warfighters here on Earth, but we also have to prepare for the day when the fight extends into space. The third line of effort: shape the strategic environment. This is a combined effort, but led here from the Department of Defense level. Uh, this is about educating and highlighting threats, conversations like we're having right now. This is about promoting responsible behavior in space. Uh, this is about making it clear to potential adversaries that we will protect and defend our interests in space, and that it is ultimately not in their interests to harm our, our capabilities in space. Uh, as the President's National Security Strategies uh, states very clearly, quote, any harmful interference with or an attack upon critical components of our space architecture will be met with a deliberate response at a time, place, manner, and domain of our choosing." End quote. The last line of effort is cooperate with allies, partners, industry, and other U.S. government departments and agencies. Uh, I think here it's worth highlighting two long-term competitive advantages the U.S. has among many in space, uh, our allies and partners, and U.S. industry. So allies and partners, uh, there's a lot of excitement from allies and partners to do more in space. In just the last six weeks, I've conducted three level work, three working level uh, bilat meetings, UK, Australia, and Norway. Uh, we are very aligned with our allies and partners on the importance and opportunities in space. And we're also very aligned on our concerns about the threatening behavior from China and Russia. Uh, to effectively counter these threats, we need to work together closely to ensure that uh, our allies and partners are carrying more of the burden, uh, collective security, burden sharing, et cetera. Uh, and, and I think there's interest on their parts in doing that. Uh, and we also need to make sure that as, as we build new architectures, as they build new systems, uh, that they are all interoperable and we uh, can, can work together effectively going forward. And last thing on allies and partners, uh, we are actually attracting new partners through space, uh, space situational Space situational awareness, uh, sort of information about what's out in space. We've set up agreements with uh, over 20 countries uh, and in total over 100 different organizations, including academics and uh, commercial entities around the world to, to share that data. That presents incredible opportunities. 
In just the last year, we've signed new agreements with Finland, Chile, Luxembourg, Peru, and Portugal. Um, so allies and partners. As I mentioned, another long-term competitive advantage of the United States is the U.S. space industry. Uh, we have an opportunity here from the, for, for the DOD to leverage the innovation, the speed, the process, the capabilities the U.S. space industry is developing, and we absolutely must do that. And we have organizations like the Space Development Agency, Space Force, who are uh, doing everything they can to, to work that way. Also, our partners at FAA, Commerce, NASA, et cetera, are all working together uh, to accelerate uh, how to streamline regulations to ensure that uh, our, our U.S. industry has a, uh, is able to compete well and move at speed. And then DOD uh, needs to do everything we can, both in terms of uh, partnering with, buying from our commercial partners, but also creating the, the environment in which those uh, commercial partners can succeed uh, going forward. Because like I said, uh, U.S. commercial space industry can now innovate the world, uh, and we, the Department of Defense, will benefit from that in the long run. Let me just conclude by reemphasizing sort of the title of this event and the points I've already made. Uh, we have made historic progress in space. Uh, the last few years have been unlike probably any other, in particularly on the national security side of the space enterprise, the moves that we've made. Uh, as Secretary Esper recently said, quote, we have an unprecedented opportunity to transform every aspect of our defense space enterprise and apply the necessary focus, energy, resources to ensure that our nation can defend our vital interests and capabilities in space now and in the decades to come. End quote. We have hard work ahead of building a space posture that is strong, resilient, and responsive, of integrating space into joint and com combined operations, of shaping a strategic environment to promote responsible behavior in space, and of partnering with allies, partners, and with the U.S. into space industry. Uh, it's an exciting time. Uh, we've got, we're all sprinting, running hard and fast, uh, but we've, uh, we're, we're not going to stop. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. So uh, thanks again for having me, JV. Happy to uh, be part of the conversation, take some questions, or uh, part of the conversation going over. Thanks. Just, Justin, thank you for that great uh, opening. I've got a couple of questions for you, and we'll start off with the Space Force and Space Command. They were both designed. Uh, to streamline the command and control uh, within DOD space. Could you talk a bit about the effectiveness uh, of those two organizational moves and what the big wins are for the American people? Yeah, thanks, JV. I think, uh, first off, uh, the good news is both organizations are up and running. Uh, they're still growing, but there's uh, real progress to date, I would say, on both of those, Space Command and Space Force. Space Command, uh, their job is to operate. So forces are delivered to uh, General Dickinson, a new Army general who's running Space Command. Uh, to, to, to whether that's you know supporting warfighters uh, around the world or you know reacting to potential threatening actions in space, uh, real progress there. We've got somebody focused 24/7 on protecting and defending, operating in space today. Space Force General Raymond, his team, likewise running hard and fast, delivering real results for America. Uh, they have uh, their job is to. Uh, organize, train, and equip in DOD speak. So build the Space Force, build the forces that will protect and defend. Uh, so they're transferring uh, just this fall thousands of people from the Air Force into the Space Force. Uh, a number of my personal friends are transitioning in. It's great. It's fantastic uh, to see them put on that Space Force badge. Uh, and they're, so they're standing up a new organization, but they're also really focusing on 
uh, what are the capabilities we need over the long term? What, is, uh, what does the Space Force look like in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years uh, to make sure we're uh, moving quickly now, but also preparing for the long term? The combined effect, I think, is has fundamental change of the game uh, for the U.S. in terms of being able to protect and defend our interests in space. Great. Well, thank you. A couple of follow-ups, if I can. The NDAA established uh, the Space Force, but it limited DOD's reorganizational efforts to just the Air Force, and yet many of the disparate, the 60 different organizations within DOD that, by all accounts, were ineffective in governing space, are actually found outside of the Air Force. Where do you, uh, where do the, the big biggest challenges, where are they, and, and do they still persist, and what would be the next prudent moves to refine the command and control structure? Yeah, no, thanks, JV. I think the, the good news is by just by setting up the Space Force, by putting a four-star in charge and, and letting him be at the table in these senior conversations, that, that is a, a fundamental sea change uh, in how space uh, is employed and developed in, inside the Department of Defense. I think there's still sort of... Uh, cleanup work to do, and a lot of that will happen over time as organizations either move into the Space Force, as we uh, consider transferring capabilities from other services, as we move budgets uh, over from, uh, you know, the Army has some space capabilities, the Navy has some space capabilities, how do we merge that all over time? I think the vision is is clear and consistent that we do want the Space Force to be the absolute center of gravity for space. Um, and there's just, there's some work to do, uh, just, and, and that takes time, and you, you, you want to keep we don't want to break things as we do it, right? So there's sort of a focus on, because we, we're operating today in space, uh, providing space capabilities to the world. Uh, we don't want to, to drop any balls. But I think the, the good news is is the progress is underway. We'll probably get it, you know, there will be, you know, missteps and small mistakes along the way, but I think we're we're moving at speed and General Raymond's the right guy to get it done. Fantastic. One, one last question for you. Um, so you talked about four priorities and, and the first of those is build. In that vein, what, in your view, should be the focus of the Space Force in its second year of existence? Yeah. Uh, I, one, I think they uh, they have a lot of work across all sort of their lanes, uh, organizing, training, and equipping. Uh, I think the, probably the biggest single thing that I think I know General Raymond is working on and, you know, more to follow on this, but is really fleshing out that long-term vi- vision for the Space Force. What, are the, what is the force design, force development uh, elements of the Space Force? What does that future vision in 10, 20, 30 years uh, need to look like? And then we, uh, in sort of the rest of the department, need to figure out how, to, does, that, how does that fit in with our overall strategy? Uh, is the posture, uh, you know, how we talk about things, what we're deciding to defend? Uh, there's a lot of work to do in sort of the, the space posture around that, but it really goes back to uh, General Raymond and his team figuring out, laying out the, the really compelling vision for the future of the Space Force. So I, I know you're excited about the process ahead. Any final thoughts for us this morning? Well, JV, just uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk about this. Like I mentioned, our uh, one of our key lines of effort is uh, and basically shaping the environment by which we really mean talking educating, uh, having these conversations so that uh, the American people can understand just the important progress we've made, uh, but also the work that we have yet to do. Uh, there's there's hard work ahead, uh, and but it's an exciting, exciting time, and just an honor to be with you and uh, uh, be able to talk about that space together this morning. So thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Justin. Look forward to seeing you again soon.
With that, Thanks. ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring up our panel. Uh, uh, gentlemen, if you would, uh, come up voice and come up video and let these fine uh, folks in our audience see your handsome faces, and, and we'll start out with questions. Henry, you were the first guy to come up, and if I could throw a question at you, sir. Uh, in 2010, there were three commercial organizations that provided space launch services in the United States. Th those were United Launch Alliance, Orbital Sciences, which is now merged with Northrop Grumman and SpaceX. This year, we've doubled that number by adding Astra Space Launch, Rocket Lab, and Firefly Aerospace to the, to the roster. What were the key factors uh, that led to doubling the number of private space launch organizations in the United States? Thanks, JV. Uh, well, first of all, there are really a couple of different markets here. Uh, some of the, uh, the first, the older companies involved, um, ULA and, uh, North, and Orbital Northrop and SpaceX in the shadows, uh, also uh, potential uh, for Blue Origin. Uh, um, they've had a lot of tests with their flights, but it's another one. Those are, they're, they're focused primarily on the heavy lift market. And, uh, and that goes to GEO with big satellites, expensive satellites, uh, and even beyond, uh, they'll be supporting some of the future NASA developments as well. Uh, in deep space exploration. The, uh, the other three companies that you mentioned uh, are focusing on the small satellites. Now, it, it should be noted that the, the large uh, heavy lift satellites can also launch uh, constellations of small satellites. So there's a lot of potential demand. The market is growing. Small satellites are becoming a big part of the market, including um, uh, large orders from the uh, Defense Department, as well as the potential for commercial uh, systems such as uh, remote sensing and, uh, and of course, uh, communication satellites. They're going to operate together, but we don't, uh, and they will, they won't duplicate exactly the same services and the same products, but they, uh, they will be similar in many ways, and also it, it helps with responsiveness and resilience if something does uh, happen. Uh, and uh, those expensive large satellites are, um, are not available all the time. They should be, and there's no reason to expect that they won't be. But uh, we have, do have to be prepared. But the, uh, the small satellite constellations, and particularly on the private sector side, commercial side, uh, still have not, uh, been um, fully launched uh, and proven, and the size of the market, how many of these constellations and systems in the future we need, is still an open question. So space is risky, it's a risky investment, We've got plenty of launch vehicles, and we cannot also uh, talk about the launch market without mentioning the foreign competition is there too. And we've almost always had an oversupply worldwide in uh, launch capabilities. So that uh, is this a profitable, good investment for a number of the new companies yet to be determined? Obviously, they see it or they wouldn't be investing. But uh, whether it will actually happen or not is still a business risk. Yeah, do you think, Henry, there are enough financial incentives in this market to grow those uh, the number of U.S. space launch corporations that are that are actively involved in this. There's plenty of money out there. It's a question again of the market and as right. to uh, whether they can sell these products both to the government and to the private sector. Uh, and and if, if you actually look at the numbers and take out 
the super angels, the so-called uh, the billionaires, the Musks and, and Bezos with their investments, and also the consolidation and mergers and acquisitions that are part of that, you're left with small companies, good ideas, innovative, uh, probably in the range of a billion to two billion dollars a year, which is tremendous growth over re recent years in private money, but it's still not all that large. And there's, I think, in terms of finance, yes, there's money out there, but there's opportunity costs too. Are these investments better than alternate uh, investments of um, from the, um, uh, the those who wish to uh, put money into it? Open questions. Still open questions. Yeah. Well, grateful. So this is just one of the legs in the trifecta of, of U.S.-based dominance that we're moving towards. And I want to bring in uh, Mike Gold with NASA and for uh, that leg of this. NASA's uh, uh, success over the last several years, actually since its inception, uh, Mike, has been matching a strategic vision with necessary funding. And, you know, in 1961, President Kennedy announced his vision for landing a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And over the course of the next nine years, successive administrations readily funded that effort. So my question is, how has that, how has the vision for NASA's human space exploration uh, program changed over the last 10 years? And has the funding matched that vision? Yeah, so thank you. I, I can tell you over the past 10 years, for me personally, it's been 40 pounds and gray hair. And, uh, <laughs> I think that changes at NASA have been equally dramatic. But before I get to that, I, I do want to thank UJV and Heritage for convening this very important conversation. And also thank my fellow panelists, Henry and Dean, for all of their contributions to the field and to the country. So just really appreciate what everyone's doing here. <laughs> so in terms of, of changes in, in policy, and Henry hit some of that, you know, we are at the beginning of a commercial space revolution. And a decade ago and farther back, we couldn't even imagine the capabilities and the public-private partnerships that we're able to leverage. And what's interesting is not only uh, has that started, but the momentum continues to gain. As you know, recently we went not only from private sector entities launching cargo to the International Space Station, but launching people for the first time. And we've also given awards for these public-private partnerships to go beyond low Earth orbit. We'll have private sector entities delivering logistics to the moon. And so it's been so incredible to see this shift in policy, like you say, through uh, numerous administrations. And it's been good to see the consistent support, uh, beginning with President George W. Bush going on to the Obama administration, being continued even more robustly under the Trump administration for commercial space. That's been a, a good piece of consistency uh, that we've seen. And in terms of human spaceflight, if you go back 10 years, we had a program that was ending with the shuttle. Now we have a program that's beginning, a, a new era, a new dawn with Artemis program, as well as leveraging commercial crew to deliver astronauts to the International Space Station. And as we look at Artemis, which is NASA's program to get the first woman and the next man on the moon by 2024, all in preparation for creating a sustainable and safe uh, foundation of exploration, discovery, and utilization on the moon, which will then lead to Mars, 
this is a tremendous new program and initiative that we didn't have a decade ago. And because of the fact that we're targeted in moving forward to the moon, not only are we able to bring together a coalition with our private sector partners, but we're able to rally the international community. America is able to lead, and the Artemis program will represent the largest and most diverse global human spaceflight coalition in history, and that's because we've got a mission in terms of returning to the moon and going on to Mars that's clear, and a date by 2024 with which to get there. And that's the policy that we need to be successful. Well, Sandy, just a, a follow-up, and want to dwell on this funding issue if I can. The, you know, the space shuttle program ended with the last flight of Atlantis in 2011, and by that point, uh, President Obama had canceled the Constellation program and placed it with a, replaced it with an asteroid retrieval mission, which received, I, I think, pretty much muted support from Capitol Hill, NASA, and internationally. Um, how has NASA coped with a, that lack of continuity in human spaceflight? What can be done to protect and preserve the current Artemis program through the administrations ahead? Yeah, it's been challenging. You know, you raise some very critical issues, and this is where I'm going to ask all the engineers to cover their ears because often I believe that the engineering and the technical aspects uh, are <laughs> at least equaled by the political, the financial, and the legal challenges that we have. There's no rocket equation for sustained congressional support. And as you point out, there has not been consistency in the human spaceflight program in the past beyond the thread of commercial space, which has been great to see. And there's also been a debate not just partisan, and so much of NASA actually isn't partisan, it can be more parochial, um, but also substantive relative to the moon or Mars. And this was a debate that raged within Congress and within policy and even within the agency, where you had people say things like, every dollar you spend on the moon is a dollar you're not spending on Mars. And what Administrator Bridenstine has been so successful in doing is really uniting the tribes bringing together not only Congress with bipartisan support, but also bringing the Moon and Mars team together, learning that we need to develop on the Moon in order to get to Mars. It isn't Moon or Mars, it's Moon and Mars. And that's been absolutely critical and has been backed by robust support from this administration financially and policy-wise, and we're grateful for both the administration's support and the bipartisan buy-in, which I haven't seen before like this in my career. So you talk about budgets. You know, yes, we still uh, have some budget issues relative to particularly the human landing system, and we need more funds there. As the old saying goes, no bucks, no buck rogers. But if we did receive from the House a historic level of funding in hundreds of millions of dollars, 600 million roughly, uh, in funding for that system. So that hasn't happened in terms of those level of dollars since Apollo, which demonstrates the value of the mission. But we've still got to get the dollars in. The human landing system is being done via, again, a terrific public-private partnership. We're leveraging private sector efficiency and affordability, but we still need those dollars. So please go out and Call your members of Congress and ask them to support NASA and America's and the world's return to the moon. 
Oh, thank you, Mike. Just two great segments right there. We're going to throw a lot of stuff into space um, over the course of the next, well, decades ahead. And, and with that comes another opportunity. And Dean, I want to bring you into this third leg of the, uh, the trifecta for us today in the, the Department of Defense. Uh, they just released its latest report on uh, the Chinese military. What does this mean and what does that bode for the United States Space Force? Well, um, the uh, DOD has been charged since uh, fiscal year 2000 to produce an annual report on Chinese <clears throat> military capabilities and broader uh, security efforts. And one of the things that uh, this year's report continues to highlight, and it's been a factor in the last several reports, has been China's growing set of space capabilities, uh, its efforts to establish a uh, greater military uh, capability uh, portfolio. Um, one of the things to keep in mind is that the Chinese have been very careful students of other people's wars because they haven't fought a war themselves since 1979. That means closely observing American military efforts and their conclusion has long been, uh, as Justin said, uh, the American way of war is rooted in space. And if you can deprive the U.S. of that capability, where at least uh, attenuate it, dilute it, uh, weaken it, then we are going to be on our back foot. We are not going to be able to fight the way we're used to fighting. Uh, with all the tensions that are now going on in the Taiwan Straits, in the South China Sea, um, this is a very important consideration. And uh, the DOD report, which is probably the single best official U.S. government document uh, on Chinese military capabilities, if you, if you put them next to each other and look them over, you can see the steady increase in capabilities, uh, whether it's launch capacities, whether it's types of uh, counter space capabilities the Chinese are fielding, um, as well as the growth overall in their space capabilities. Fantastic. So you you have alluded to, and Justin touched on directly earlier, um, a, a Russian incident that happened uh, in July of this year. And one of their satellites had some eye-opening activities that led both the United States and the United Kingdom to go public with what they had seen. Could you go into a little bit more depth as to what happened and why this is such a big source of concern? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so a little while ago, the Russians put up a satellite known as Cosmos 2542. Um, and that was uh, moving around out in space. And later, that satellite released Cosmos 2543. Uh, so this is pretty unprecedented. Um, you, you don't typically have satellites launching other satellites. And one of the things that 2543 has done is that it has essentially matched a U.S. satellite, uh, USA 245, uh, whenever you wind up with satellites that have no fun, cool names like uh, Hubble, um, it's often a, a U.S. government uh, satellite, meaning a U.S. Uh, defense or intelligence satellite, um, which means it's a sensitive issue. And 2543 basically started shadowing USA 245. And that's pretty threatening because there's no reason to do that um, unless you're either trying to figure out what the satellite is, which, okay, or maybe you're lining up your gun sites. But what 20, Cosmos 2543 did this summer in July was it released 
another smaller object. It's almost like one of those Russian dolls, right? This a big doll nesting a smaller doll, nesting something smaller. And this little thing that came out was moving at a very high speed. It probably wasn't a satellite. It may well have been a projectile. And that essentially, because in space there's no terrain, there's no cover, what you can see, you can, in theory, hit and, in theory, kill. What this was was a shot across the bow. The Russians were basically saying, let me show you what I can do with a satellite that had already been trailing a sensitive U.S. government satellite. So the Russians basically were saying implicitly through this demonstration, these are the kinds of capabilities I have. I could do bad things to other satellites. Be a real shame if something happened to USA 245, wouldn't it? Right. Yeah. So eye-opening. Uh, and th thanks for e expanding on that. I've got a question from the audience here that uh, is going to touch on all of our areas. And basically is what other countries are involved other than Russia and China with space? Now, uh, if you go into NASA, um, China is looking to launch their own space station and, and then invite a bunch of other nations to join them in that endeavor. Um, as far as commercial launch, uh, Henry, there's a gazillion, seemingly so, nations and corporations within that that are moving in those directions. Could you guys touch on it? And uh, Mike, I'll, I'll start with you first. Could you, you talk about what other nations are now actively pursuing space and what implications those are have for the United yeah. States? So I, I think it almost would be easier to identify which countries aren't pursuing space that there has been a global awakening relative to the economic, the national security, importance of space. And we have seen the growth of numerous new space agencies develop throughout the world. Uh, not only do you have the traditional players of the European Space Agency, JAXA, NASA, but new entrants like the United Arab Emirates that in a very short time have launched the first interplanetary Arab space probe. Uh, you've got Australia that's taking $150 million, which is small relative to NASA's budget, but you know what? They're investing it in Artemis, which is absolutely terrific to see. And as you talk about what China's doing in space, you know, you're exactly right that they do tout uh, the fact that they're going to have a space station. They go to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space and often use it as a tool for diplomacy and national priority to bring other countries onto that space station for free. And that's why it's so important that the U.S. have the right policy. And that means maintaining our presence in low Earth orbit, that we should always be able uh, to have America and our allies continually in low Earth orbit. That means getting what we can out of the remaining years of the International Space Station and ensuring that there's a transition. We cannot have a space station gap in the same way that we had a crew transportation gap with the retirement of shuttle because among other reasons, as you mentioned, we're not operating in a vacuum anymore, that now uh, there's an alternative with the Chinese uh, space station. And then it's very important that we get the beyond low Earth orbit exploration policy right. As, you know, you raised in your question about the asteroid retrieval mission. It's very important that we have a policy that's attractive to the international community, not only so we can join with our traditional partners in Japan, in Europe, and elsewhere, but so that we can attract 
the United Arab Emirates, that we can attract the Australias, that we can attract smaller but important players like Luxembourg to bring them along on this journey because it's important that we not only take our astronauts and our systems to the moon, but we carry our values, the values of the rule of law, of respect for the Outer Space Treaty, of reinforcing the Outer Space Treaty. We're working on something called the Artemis Accords now, which you'll be hearing more about soon, where we're establishing the norms of behavior in space, the principles to establish a safe, transparent, and peaceful future for all of us. And we hope that not only the countries that join us in Artemis, but China and others abide by these principles because we think there's nothing in them that a responsible spacefaring nation would ever uh, object to. So it's very important to have a policy, and we've got it in moving forward to the moon, that can rally the international community to move forward and incorporate all of these new nations that have a strong desire and are investing in space. Fantastic. Uh, Henry, any thoughts on the international movement? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, I think you have to keep in mind, uh, go back in history a little bit, almost every nation is dependent on space for tele for communications. And that goes back many, many years. Um, now, I think it's last I saw maybe 80 nations are now also operating uh, their own telecommunications uh, equipment in space. So the space is, is we worldwide and particularly in, in the developed uh, industrial nations, we're dependent on space. And our economy is part of national security and is also dependent on space these days and becoming more so. But along with that, the uh, technologies involved have matured. So it, whether where it started as basically two superpowers, it has now expanded and other nations have plenty of capabilities in space. Although I think we still have the technical and technological lead over many other nations. Now, the sharing of all these technologies has been very important in international cooperation and development, but we need to continue that innovation and continue to be in the lead and I think that's what programs at NASA and the Defense Department and other agencies in, uh, in our government have been uh, very adept at doing and will continue to do. And also from the very beginning, private companies have been involved, often building to specs for the government in the beginning. NASA's budget uh, in from the very first days in the late 1950s and 60s was spent approximately 80% to private companies. The way we're dealing with private companies has changed and we recognize that maturity and the government is more buying services now or trying to than it did be, uh, in, in earlier years. But the involvement's been there. It's part of the, the way we're organized other nations are not necessarily organized in exactly the same way. And that is part of the competitive problem that we face. Well, thanks, Henry. Let me bring Dean in, and I'm going to tweak this one a little bit with uh, one of the questions from the audience. Dean, we obviously know that China and Russia have militarized space. Great remarks that set that standard from Justin earlier. Um, and we know that there have been other countries that have moved in that direction, India and rumblings out of Iran as well. Could you talk about who else may be developing military programs in space 
and then come back to the United States, China, and Russia? And are we in a situation where we have a window of vulnerability with those nations that we need to close? So I think it was a RAND report from the 1990s that said something like 95% of all space technology is dual use. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, the same systems that monitor spacecraft, whether they're going to the moon with people or launching communication satellites in many countries is the same equipment that is being used to look for ICBM launches and potential nuclear attack. Um, similarly, a lot of space launch rockets are older versions of what used to be ICBMs in various countries' arsenals. So there's absolutely dual use. Um, and if you are interested in developing nuclear delivery vehicles, uh, Iran, North Korea, um, you also can claim to have a space uh, program. Um, and to be fair to both of those countries, they do seem to have launched satellites in the last few years. Um, so absolutely, there is a tight, close relationship between military and civil slash commercial use of space in every country. Uh, this is complicated by the reality that every country has a right, and the US has reaffirmed this, every country has a right to use space for peaceful purposes. So it's not something that we can just go out there and say, you, you can't do this. That's uh, not acceptable, and the international community wouldn't accept that. So we have to keep a close watch on this. This gets further complicated when countries that we have good relations with or are trying to develop good relations with actually wind up developing space weapons. Uh, we're not always happy about that. India recently tested an anti-satellite uh, capability. Um, the Indians did so uh, with a downward firing uh, to the best of my knowledge, interception so the debris didn't go upwards to last decades. But nonetheless, uh, this was something that caused certain uh, parts of the U.S. government, uh, including NASA, to say basically, um, we're not happy about this, and understandably so. Um, what happens in space at the end of the day, however, is a dependent variable to what happens on Earth. Good relations on Earth leads to good relations in space. Um, we would not have an international space station with the Russians as a partner if the Cold War hadn't ended, frankly. Um, this goes to your second part, which is where are uh, Russia, the US, and China going? Um, I think it's probably not news to any of our viewers that US-China relations are rocky, probably rockier than they've been in decades, and US-Russia relations have uh, seen a higher points in the past. Both of those have led all three countries to watch each other, but especially Russia and China to watch the United States with concern and vice versa about our respective space capabilities. Russia and China have been more openly testing capabilities that are potentially military and definitely a threat uh, to US space systems. I don't see that changing anytime soon. I do want to throw out one positive note, however, because Walter Loman, my boss, keeps saying I'm one of the most depressing people he has working for him. Um, if you look at um, the Mars probe that uh, Mike Gold mentioned from the UAE, um, that was launched on a Japanese rocket. And I think that's a really useful thing to point out that space is offering the real potential here for unprecedented partnerships and cooperative ventures, as well as taking our terrestrial fears and concerns into space. Um, I'm not sure who would have predicted that a Middle East space probe would go up on a 
Japanese rocket. But I think that that bodes well for, and something to think about, whether it's commercial, whether it's governmental, new lines of cooperation, new lines of, of interaction that might well upend some of our more terrestrially based expectations. And I cannot help but jump in on that. So Jim Brinstein and I were part of the virtual launch party for that. And then we were listening to the feed after the launch of the very aptly named Hope. And you had going over each other, Japanese from the launch team, Arabic from the Hope spacecraft team, and English, by the way, from support that we had given uh, via many of our universities that contributed to the Hope launch to see those three languages overlapping with each other during the launch. It was really inspirational, not only to see, again, us leading the global coalition, but U.S. partner nations coming together to collaborate. And it's a great example, just as you're describing, Dean, of building these closer relationships here on Earth via cooperation in space. And, and also to underscore what Mike just said, and uh, also his prior comments about the space treaties, one of the very basic principles of the Outer Space Treaty is uh, that's been now signed or ratified by over 130 nations worldwide is international cooperation. Well, what a fantastic way and a positive way, Dean, to end our, our session this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd love to thank and publicly these three gentlemen, Henry, Mike, Dean, thank you for being with us today. Um, uh, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us uh, for the new race for space. Um, if you work on the Hill uh, or a think tank or have questions uh, that are egging at you that we didn't get to, please contact me using the information listed on the screen here and, and I'll do my best to get back with you and or connect you with these uh, gentlemen uh, to let them give you their thoughts. Immediately following this event, you'll receive a survey. I hope you'll fill it out. It'll help us do better in the events ahead. Um, and, and with that, um, I, I hope that you'll go onto our website to see what is actually in, in the uh, hopper that's coming up at heritage.org slash events. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure to be with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. I wish you all a great Wednesday.